Hello. Hi, we're back. Yeah, we uh, had to miss a week, unfortunately. Why did we have to miss the week? Because life got in the way. Oh, yeah. There's one yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Sometimes things happen. <laughs> this sounds like I'm trying to give a birds and the bees talk. Um, <laughs> but yeah, life got, I'm not going to get into the whole thing, but yeah. life got ahead, definitely got ahead of me. Um, oh, it got ahead of me too. And, uh, and it just wasn't going to happen. So, so, but here we are. This is the weirdest here we thing. Are. Yes. I'm Scotty Milder, one of your hosts. I am Amelia Ampuero, your other host. This is our podcast about just all sorts of weird, interesting shit that we find. Weird stuff. Ooh, all right. I think you're starting this week. I am starting. Are we just going to, are we just jumping in? Uh, let's do it. Okay, fantastic. I am going to start with a ghost story. Ooh. Okay, so picture this. It's summer of 2011, mm -hmm. and a cabbie is driving around looking for fares. Uh, business has been slow for a while now, and the cabbie yeah. finally sees a woman flagging him down, and he's like, oh, thank God he's grateful to find a fare. Uh, the cabbie pulls over and notices that even though it's summer, the woman is wearing a heavy winter coat, and not only that, but she is completely drenched. Mm. The woman gets in the cab and asks to be like asked to be taken to a largely abandoned district. As the cabbie switches on the meter, he says that area is almost empty. Are you sure? And there's a long pause, and then the woman asks in a shivering voice. Have I died? The cabbie, suddenly terrified, turns around to face his customer, only to find a completely empty backseat. Like, this? you literally <laughs> just gave me the shivers with that. Awesome. This is the story of Japan's tsunami spirits. Ooh. Sources are Wikipedia, All That's Interesting, Unsolved Mysteries, <laughs> Britannica, uh, an article from The Guardian titled The School Beneath the Wave, The Unimaginable Tragedy of Japan's Tsunami, an article from NPR called Tsunami's Ghosts Haunt Japanese Earthquake Survivors, and an episode of This American Life. It's actually episode 597 titled One Last Thing Before I Go. Let's start at the beginning. At 2.46 p.m. on March 11th, 2011, a magnitude 9.1 undersea mega thrust earthquake happened about 20 miles underwater and accounts vary. I saw 40 miles or 80 miles off of the coast of Japan. Either way, that's real fucking close. It's it's way too close for comfort. A mega thrust earthquake. Did you talk about this? No, because the other one was a volcano explosion. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so this is brand new information for everybody. <laughs> so a mega thrust earthquake is the planet's most powerful earthquake and occurs when one tectonic plates, and those are pieces of the Earth's crust, mm -hmm. um, one tectonic plate is forced underneath another one. Yeah. So like I said, mega thrust earthquakes are the earth's most powerful earthquakes since 1900, when the magnitude of earthquakes began to be officially recorded, all 9.0 and above earthquakes have been mega thrust earthquakes. Yeah. In the days leading up to March 11th, several four shocks, uh, those are earthquakes that happen before a larger seismic event 
yeah. were recorded. These were not like small quakes, by the way. Uh, a 7.24 shock was registered on March 9th, oh, about wow. 25 miles from where the March 11th quake would happen. And that same day, another three, four shocks occurred that all registered higher than 6.0. After the March 11th seismic event, aftershocks registering as high as 7.7 were felt as of March 11th, 2016, so five years after, over 800 aftershocks of 5.0 or greater have occurred since the initial quake, including one on October 26, 2013, which was a 7.1 magnitude. Wow. If I am understanding what I read correctly, one of the most recent aftershocks of the 2011 earthquake just happened on February 13th of 2021. I mean, that's kind of scary because it's like, wait, is it getting ready to go again? Yeah. Yeah. I... Mega thrust earthquake, not to like totally override you, but like that's one of the things that is the most terrifying to me is the idea of a mega thrust earthquake. Yeah. In doing the research for this, I was like, oh, okay. I've just created like new, new like fears and phobias for myself. Yeah. For all of our fans who happen to live in the Pacific Northwest, uh, you should track down uh, a New Yorker article from a few years ago about like how a megathrust earthquake could pretty much kill all of you. So, you know, have fun with that. Yay. Yay. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, the, Temblor, which is like the tremors from the yeah. March 11th, 2011 event was felt in Russia, Taiwan, and China. Like the actual earthquake Holy shit. was felt in Russia, Taiwan, and China. The quake and was the... Mm-hmm. Just a quick question. So like, I believe the Richter scale works like when I was talking about the volcanic explosivity index where it's like exponential every time. Right. So like- I believe so. There is a picture of the, like the seismograph. Mm-hmm. Is that what it's called? Like the thing that records the activity and it is, I mean, nuts. Yeah. <laughs> like there's no <laughs> other way to say it. We'll post it on social media for this episode. It, I mean, it's, it's just a bunch of squiggly lines and it is, terrifying. Yeah. The quake was the largest ever recorded in Japan and the fourth largest earthquake ever recorded since record keeping began in 1900. The earthquake early warning system sent out warnings of the impending earthquake to millions of people in Japan, and it did save a lot of lives, but the populist warnings didn't trigger in the Koshinetsu and Northern Tohoku regions, which Mm. is kind of like where all of this is going to be taking place. Yeah. Okay. So we have the earthquake that happens at 2.46 p.m. Then, as I'm sure you can imagine, plates of the Earth's crust being like shoved under one another is going to displace a shit ton of water. Yeah. When the tectonic plates shifted off the coast of Tohoku, the, it resulted in an upthrust of between 20 to 26 feet along a 110-mile-wide seabed. So that means, like... Here are the, again, nobody can see this, but I'm doing it for Scotty. So like, (laughs) here are the plates. One goes under and it does this at a height of 20 to 26 feet for 110 miles. Yeah. So just to describe what Amelia was doing is she had her hands like flat to each other and then she just put one almost vertical. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it's just, it's not good. No. This 
sends basically a 12-story wave crashing into Japan's coast. Yeah. A tsunami warning was issued, but greatly underestimated the height of the tsunami waves. Seawalls that were built to protect against this exact kind of thing just were no match for the massive waves. There is a lot of footage of the tsunami crashing into the coast of Japan. This is all taking place on the northeastern coast of Japan, Mm -hmm. um, including some harrowing news helicopter footage that caught a massive wave from the sky. Uh, I think I saw that. I think I remember that. Yeah, the footage is extremely eerie because Mm -hmm. the size and the scope of the tsunami are hard to distinguish until you see the waves hit land and then they're carrying away whole buildings. Yeah, okay. Um, I do remember that. Yeah, and it's like in one spot there is an 18-foot seawall and the wave, I mean, like it's nothing, like it's a curve. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. Reports say that the tsunami reached run-up heights and run-up height is how far the wave surges inland above a sea level Mm -hmm. of up to 128 feet and traveled inland as far as six miles. Wow. In certain areas, the estimated speed of the waves was five miles per second. Oh, shit. Yeah. Though Japan was closest to the epicenter, the earthquake triggered tsunami warnings all throughout the Pacific Basin. 11 to 12 foot waves hit the coasts of Kauai and Hawaii, the islands of Kauai and Hawaii. Mm -hmm. Five foot waves uh, hit the Aleutian Islands. Aleutian, I think. Aleutian. That's how I've always always heard it, but I actually have no idea. (laughs) Islands chain will just... Dub that in for me. Aleutian Island. Um, yeah. <laughs> hours later, eight-foot waves hit the coasts of California and Oregon. 3.3-foot waves hit the coast of Vancouver Island in Canada. Yeah. Waves hit the coasts of the Philippines, Indonesia, Papua New Guinea, Tonga, New Zealand, American Samoa, Guam, and in some cases, uh, in some cases doing like millions of dollars worth of damage in those places yeah. where the waves hit. Mexico, Peru, Chile, and the Galapagos Islands were all hit with surges that's insane Mm -hmm. 18 hours later one foot waves hit the coast of antarctica now you think okay they're one foot waves like how bad can they be but they're one foot waves that have like literally the entire pacific ocean behind them yeah so they caused a portion of the Salzburger ice shelf to break off oh yeah after a nearly seven foot surge hit the coast of chile the reflection for that surge traveled so the wave hits chile and then it sends it back across the ocean, mm-hmm. that surge traveled all the way back across the Pacific about 48 hours after the quake causing 12 to 24 inch surges in Japan. So they'd wow. already been hit by this and then <laughs> yeah. the water level rises by another foot to two feet. Yeah. The quakes and the resulting tsunami caused portions of... <laughs> This is insane. Sorry. It snuck up on me and like this next bit is insane to me. The quakes and resulting tsunami caused portions of northeastern Japan to shift almost eight feet closer to North America. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. The Earth's axis shifted four to ten inches. Mm. The Earth's rotation sped up shortening the day by 1.8 microseconds and the quake generated infrasound waves detected from space by the gravity field and steady state ocean circulation explorer satellite the energy generated by the tsunami like had they been able to like harness the power of it would have been enough to power all of new york city for a week holy shit so this is like nuclear bombs have nothing on this like yeah, yeah. i mean it's utter devastation right 
So the earthquake itself didn't account for a ton of deaths. Mm-hmm. Um, that responsibility laid at the feet of the tsunami and the resulting destruction that took the lives of over 18,000 people. Yeah. Uh, 2021 reports put the official death toll at 19,747 deaths, 6,242 injuries, and 2,556 people missing. Wow. That's an, So like those people have not been found. I mean, I think that's the thing with like mega thrust earthquakes across the world because i think they if it's the tectonic plate boundaries it's like pretty much always at sea yeah so it's like yeah i mean that's the same thing that happened i believe in the indian ocean tsunami you know it's it's, it's so. always the tsunami that does it yeah in 2015 a report was released saying that over a quarter of a million people were still displaced from their homes yeah um yeah like their you know their towns and their villages and stuff had just been wiped away just and gone yeah. Okay. This is, I'm going to give a little bit of a content warning here um, just because I'm going to talk about some victims of the tsunami that are children. Mm-hmm. Um, so if that's something that's hard for you to hear, just skip forward a few minutes. At the Okawa Elementary School, the earthquake hit as the school day was ending. As is custom, the school is governed. Okay. So the schools in Japan, from what I can understand, are governed by a manual that covered everything from like ethical principles to emergency protocol. Mm-hmm. Um, the manual provided generic instructions that were to be adjusted according to the circumstances of the school. So right. just like it sounds, it was like, here's, here's sort of a like general thing of what you should do, but you should really go back in and, and make this specific to your, your own location. Yeah. Deputy headmaster Toshia Ishizaka had left the manual unchanged. So the only never got around to it. Yeah, Mm. I guess. So the only advice it gave was primary evacuation place, school grounds, second evacuation place in case of tsunami, vacant land near school or park, etc. Okawa Elementary resides in a village called Kamaya, and that's about 200 miles north of Tokyo. The area is remote and rural. Mm. So the manual's advice to go to a park didn't really apply because they like there weren't any parts yeah Uh, and there was plenty of vacant land but like what chunk of empty land should they go to you gotta get to high ground yeah so okawa sat in front of a 721 foot hill all of the children could climb the hill uh, because up until recently it had been used to cultivate a shiitake mushroom patch as part of their science lessons. Mm. So like all of the kids could climb the hill easily and it would have taken the children like no more than five minutes to get to the top and out of harm's way. Some of the students and the teachers began to suggest going to the top of the hill, but the idea was shot down by those in charge for fear that the hill would be destroyed by more shaking from the earthquakes aftershocks. At the same time, two groups are beginning to gather at Okawa elementary parents and grandparents arriving by car to pick up their kiddos and the local people from the village the parents smartly wanted to get their little ones the l like the hell out of dodge fast this is a couple of quotes from the education board's log my mom came to pick me up and we told mr takashi that i was going home we were told it's dangerous to go home now so better stay in the school parent I told Mr. Takashi, the radio says that there's a 10 meter tsunami coming. I said, run up the hill and pointed to the hill. I was told, calm down, ma'am. Okay. Yeah. So we've got- Science, people. (laughs) 
So we've got full-time parents and grandparents who want to get their kids to safety. And then we've got these villagers who like, sorry to say, completely unsurprisingly, were mostly retired elderly men who were just like giving their opinions that everybody should stay put. Mm. And it was really one of those things that it was like, the book says that we should do this. And it was like, clearly fuck the book. Yeah. (laughs) But it was like, but the book says we should do this. This is a quote from the Guardian article. It was another enactment of the ancient dialogue, its lines written centuries ago between the entreating voices of women and the oblivious, overbearing dismissiveness of old men. Mm, Of the 78 children who were at Okawa when the tsunami hit, 74 of them, along with 10 of the 11 teachers, died. Yeah. The parents of 23 of the kids who died in the tsunami would go on to sue the city for negligence and responsibility in their children's deaths. They won. Yeah, yeah, good. Not good. There's no part of this that's good, but. Yeah, it's actually, and like the Guardian article is really interesting because the writer of the article says that he was looking for an angle on the, like the, the earthquake and tsunami story, but mm-hmm. it was all just sort of general like news. And he was like this, the, the, like, I, I can't find my way into the story and yeah. then heard about Okawa and he talks about, I, I'm sorry, again, I believe it's a he, it's a he, I believe he's a he. oh i believe the author is is a man talks about how he went with the parents to court the day that everything was being decided and he understands japanese but his grasp of the language is not enough to be able to understand like court proceedings Mm -hmm. uh and that he's sitting there and the judge like reads something off and you know the parents their faces don't change they look super serious they get up they walk out of the courthouse and the writer is like you know did did they lose? Yeah. Did they, you know, and it was no that they had won, but you know, the money didn't bring back their children. Right. I mean, yeah. Like, like I said, there's no part of it that's good. I'm glad they won. Yeah. Because but, fuck, fuck all those people who fucked that up. But my God, like, just yeah. yeah. Massive. So the tsunami also caused the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster. Yep. Um, that is the most severe nuclear accident since Chernobyl in 1986. The Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster is a whole episode in and of itself. So I'm mm-hmm. not going to get into it beyond to mention that it was also part of this disaster. Yeah. The damage caused by the earthquake and the tsunami reached costs of somewhere between, and I think this number is still like being figured out, but somewhere between 199 and 235 billion dollars. Yeah. Then Prime Minister Naotu Khan said in the 65 years after the end of World War II, this is the toughest and the most difficult crisis for Japan. Yeah. So, yeah. So Japan has some shit going on. It's it's going through some shit. And so not long after the disaster, these stories begin to emerge of survivors seeing and experiencing like lots of weird stuff. People say that they're seeing like the faces of dead neighbors and puddles or mm. like at their doors. They're seeing ghastly apparitions like wandering the beaches and all, I, like it's awful. Everybody's like soaking. It's always like ghosts that are like soaking wet. Yeah. Um, you know, they're hailing 
calves. They're doing stuff. There's also stuff that's more gruesome. Uh, I believe the All That's Interesting article gets into a little bit more. If you're a creep like me and probably Scotty and you want to hear more yeah, about I was that say, stuff. Send me that link. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. It gets into some, some more of the stuff a little bit more explicitly. So you can check that out. Yeah. So this is all going on in residents all across the hardest hit districts report seeing the ghosts of the tsunami victims. And it seemed like these people were collectively being haunted by those that didn't survive. So a couple of other ghost stories. First, I don't know why, for some reason, cabbies really got hit. Like cab drivers were seeing a lot of ghosts. And it seems like maybe it was because they hung around their homes, but there was like nobody really there for them to drive around. And so they just got to see all this weird shit. So aside from the story I told at the top, there was a story of another cabbie who tells of picking up a confused looking man in his twenties who kept pointing forward when the cabbie was like, where do you want to go? The young man finally said, Hayo Riyama, a mountain peak near the city. So the cabbie's like, okay. And like drives him all the way up this mountain and stops at a plateau at the summit. But when he turns around to be paid, there was no one and nothing in his cab. Mm -hmm. There's also stories of an older woman who said to haunt a refugee home. Mm -hmm. Apparently she would regularly be seen sitting down for a cup of tea and the cushion left out for her would always be soaked in seawater every time her visits were over. Wow. In another region, a fire station received incessant calls until the firemen drove to the caller's ruins to play for the debt to pray for the dead after they did the calls stopped completely mm. richard lloyd Perry, uh, he's the author of a book called Ghosts of the Tsunami, spoke with a Buddhist priest called uh, Reverend Kaneda, Reverend Kaneda, who shared the story of, okay, so this is nuts. Like this is, this is where stuff starts to like, it's already all a Mm -hmm. little like, what the heck? This story really was one where I was like, what the F Reverend Kanita shares the story of a man who had like stayed away from the disaster zone for months, yeah. like just wouldn't go to it. But he finally decides that he needs to go and see, you know, like the damage and the destruction. So he goes down there and he's overcome at the side of it all. Like yeah. it's just, it's too much for him. So he goes home, he has dinner with his family. And after the dinner, he goes into the backyard and he starts rolling around in the mud He starts making these like guttural animal sounds. And the next day he has no memory of the event. Oh, wow. Reverend Kanita, Reverend Kanita, sorry, would go on to perform an exorcism on this man and many others who believed that they were possessed by tsunami spirits. Oh, wow. So this was, this didn't just happen to this dude. It happened to a lot of people. Yeah. Whether these people were actually possessed or not, Kanita believes that these spirits are real to whoever believes that they have seen them. Perry is quoted as saying uh, of Kanita, he quote, he never said to me that he didn't believe them. He said, what matters is that people believe in them. It doesn't really matter whether you believe in ghosts. What's real is the suffering and the pain. Yeah. So... (laughs) (laughs) like is an entire nation being haunted by ghosts yeah Uh, like like 
you know, is there something else at play here? Like what the hell is going on? Perry believes that what might be happening, and he's the author of that Ghosts of the Tsunami book, he believes that what might be happening is essentially a manifestation of a nation processing its collective trauma and grief. Right. Japan is repeatedly listed among one of the least religious countries in the world. Yeah. But this is interesting. So like, I guess because what they mean there is like practicing an organized religion. Mm -hmm. But there's still like a deep sense of like spirituality and connection right. to like the dead and the ancestors. And there's lots of talk of like cult of the dead, cult of the ancestors right. happening. Well, a lot of homes in Japan have the altars to ancestors and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's interesting, just as a little sidebar. Like if you watch Japanese horror films or read Japanese horror literature, mm -hmm. like a lot of these motifs pop up like it's interesting the whole like people being soaking wet thing because mm -hmm. that's something you see popping up in japanese horror movies like long before this mm -hmm. uh, this disaster but like it's interesting if you compare like the i mean we talked i think we talked a little bit about this but if you compare the japanese version of the ring to the american version of the ring mm -hmm. there's this deep sense of spirituality in the japanese version that is mm -hmm. kind of missing from the american version mm -hmm. and it's because like that is like much more organically intrinsic from what i understand to japanese culture yeah there's definitely something there that like you said is just sort of embedded in the culture that again is yeah. not about like an organized religion it's not about like necessarily worshiping a deity but there is a belief in in a life force yeah it's like um, this more diffuse kind of spirituality yeah so dr charles r figley of the soul oh, let me try that again so <laughs> dr charles Char <laughs> fuck a duck <laughs> just leave all of these in here let's oh, yeah. try that third time third time's a charm dr charles r Bigley of the School of Social Work at Tulane University also believes that trauma shared by large groups of people can produce a like weird collective reaction. He says, quote, it's not uncommon for fellow survivors of catastrophic loss and dislocation to have common reactions, be they paranormal sightings, sounds, or smells. Mm -hmm. The smells thing is interesting. Yeah. So as a matter of fact, going along with this, people who lost loved ones in the attacks on September September 11th, 2001, have told stories of stuff like, you know, walking into rooms and the children are talking to somebody and they're like, who are you talking to? And the kid's like, I'm talking to daddy. And he's telling me knock, knock jokes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and the father like had passed away in the towers. Widows, there's like, this is so, okay. I'm, I'll just keep going and then I'll get back to it. Many widows have uh, since shared stories of overwhelming premonitions in the days leading up to the attacks mm. and or waking up in the middle of the night to see their dead spouses or family members standing at the foot of their beds. Mm. These people say without a doubt that they were not dreaming at the time. They swear they were wide awake during these visits. Yeah. It's nuts. And I think it's like, you also see it with the tsunami ghosts in Japan that it's not like, oh yeah, I had a weird thing. And oh yeah, I had a weird thing, but it's all the stuff that is like cabbies or picking up fares that disappear. People are seeing their dead neighbors at their doors. Yeah. People are, you know, they're seeing like wet people wandering on the beach. Like collectively everybody is having similar experiences. Mm -hmm. That to me is fascinating. Yeah. Well, and that gets into like, the 
the whole Jungian like collective unconscious. Right, 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 right. So post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD is something that is, I think we're still like, I think mental health professionals are still unraveling Mm -hmm. that and, and working to understand it. Usually when you're talking about PTSD, you're talking about a single person experiencing what a single person experiences after, after trauma. Right. But like what happens when a whole city, a whole nation experiences that trauma, like collectively. Right. And it like, it just, it's bound to have an effect on the collective psyche, right? Like I just, I can't imagine that if everybody goes through something and everybody like witnesses it, that it's going to like, it's going to do something. I mean, I've read stuff about this. Like they've done studies after 9-11 showing mm-hmm. that like certainly the entire city of New York and really probably the entire country was experiencing some form of PTSD. Yeah. 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 Which is also just something to remember when you talk about millennials, like they were growing up right around this time and like, yeah. So just like, you know, just cut them some slack. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Cut millennials are just a touch of slack. Okay. So this whole idea of this like collective societal PTSD is actually super important now as we enter what the 14th, 15th month of the pandemic. Yeah. Almost, I think since the beginning of the pandemic, I have been seeing like, you know, think pieces on mental health during quarantine and how to take care of ourselves and and all of this stuff. But now as we seem to be getting somewhat closer to the world reopening, mental health professionals are warning of the collective global trauma that we should all be prepared for. Yeah. When I was trying to look up some stuff to see if I could find anything about collective trauma in regards to the 2011 tsunami, everything that was coming up was about COVID. Right. So, um, (laughs) uh, buckle up. Right. Well, and it makes sense because like countless lives have been lost. Major live events have been like canceled or missed. Jobs have been lost. Lives have been uprooted. You know, like, yeah, I mean, people have talked about like entire generations following World War One, the uh, the 19, what was it, 18 pandemic, World Mm -hmm. War Two, the Great Depression. Like, there's entire generations, like our grandparents were completely like, there's this, like, people want to look back at that time with like rose colored glasses and it's like you're talking about entire generations that were just repeatedly traumatized. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, like, I don't want to be a downer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Uh, I'm not trying to be a downer, but we should all be on the watch for the way our collective grief and trauma, like will manifest itself in the coming years. Yeah. Like we're not going to know the implications for a long time. Yeah. I mean, hell, we don't actually even know the implications of the disease itself. Like they're still finding stuff out that they're like, oh shit. Yeah. So yeah. So just like, you know, take care of yourselves. Um, But perhaps we can take a page out of Otsuchi uh, resident Itaro Sasaki's book. Susaki created the phone of the wind. Uh, He bought an old-fashioned telephone booth and outfitted it with an old rotary phone after the death of his cousin in 2010. This was actually a year before the tsunami. Mm -hmm. Um, He stuck the phone booth in his garden. And it is, it's like an old, it sort of looks like a British phone booth. It's painted white. Mm -hmm. The phone is in there. Uh, He stuck it in his garden. The phone is connected to nothing and nowhere. It didn't matter because Susaki 
I'm sorry, Sasuke just wanted a place to like speak his grief out loud and connect with this cousin who had died that he missed a lot. Soon local people started walking into the phone booth to send messages to their lost loved ones, Mm. not just people who were lost in the tsunami, but anyone who died from anything from like old age disease, people who were lost in other disasters, just anything. Not surprisingly, more men than women visit the phone booth. Interesting. Uh, and the messages. So there was a, a, I think a news station or it may have been like a documentary that was like, hey, can we come in and just put a recorder in the phone so we can record the messages that are being left? And uh, Suzuki was like, yeah, yeah. Like we can totally go ahead and do that. Most of the messages frequently include direct heartfelt declarations of love, something that from the uh, This American Life episode seems to be something that is not common in the Japanese culture. Mm-hmm. So that's like these declarations of love, hope, endurance, grief, reassurance, regret. Yeah. Six years after the tsunami, over 10,000 people from all over Japan had visited the phone of the wind to talk to their loved ones and let them know that they are okay, that they are surviving, mm. that they are thinking of their loved ones, remembering them, keeping their memories alive by the simple act of talking into the wind. And that is the story of Japan's tsunami spirits. Yeah. I've read a little bit about it. I didn't know any of the details. It, like I said, the megathrust earthquakes, like there are a few, I don't know what you would say, geological possibilities or uh-huh. Uh-huh. that just like, if I let myself, we'll just keep me up at night. And yeah. like, I don't live anywhere near I mean, I anything guess that's, that's going to be affected by uh, Yeah. I guess that's the only like, comfort we can take living in new mexico we do have the yellowstone volcano to watch out for but because i was going to say that's the other one is like super volcanoes but like i think it's important like it's easy to look at like because you hear about these megathrust earthquakes they'll hit chile there have been Mm -hmm. a couple that have hit chile done massive damage caused a lot of casualties obviously the indian ocean tsunami 2004 yeah 2004 this one in japan and like kind of think like like any of these things it's easy to be like you know you feel sad but kind of relieved that it happened quote over there okay <laughs> like like that's well that's just human nature but like we need to be aware that like we are as at risk as anywhere else and like i said this new yorker article it was from a few years ago and i don't remember the author or anything like that but it talked about you know the the tectonic boundaries off the coast of like oregon and washington Mm-hmm. And basically just like how unprepared we are. If we get hit by something equivalent to what hit Japan, mm-hmm. like we are fucked because like Japan actually, from what I've read, did a lot of preparation. Like it sounds like, like with the school, there was a lot of things that they did wrong too. The, so what I read was that they were prepared for you know, like I mentioned that the, you know, the 18 foot seawall. Right. But when you have waves coming in that are like 24, 26, 30 feet high, an there's 18 foot seawall is just not going to cut it. Yeah there's, yeah. there's, there's practically nothing you can do, but if we have, if we have one, I can't remember what they call it's the something, something subduction zone. But if we have one in this area off the Pacific Northwest, I mean, mm-hmm. like we just as a nation have done nothing 
to prepare for it. There's no infrastructure in place. There's there's hardly even like evacuation plans. We're just kind of like, I don't know, guys, fingers crossed, you know. Yeah. I don't so. know if they're hoping that like emergency warning systems will be able to be like released in time. Yeah, but I think and I could be misquoting the article, but I think like they're even saying like we don't have those in place. Like, right. We just haven't done any of the preparation necessary. Well, now, this was a few well, years ago. Things may have changed, but like. I'm yeah. sure they changed with the last administration. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We know we were uh, real on the ball there for four years. but um, That was a straight up cackle. Um, <laughs> what was the story? What happened? It was a couple of years ago where some weird like missile thing came out of Hawaii. Do you remember? It was like a national alert. A national Yo, like safety yeah. alert. Do you remember? And I think this? it was yeah. Well, was it like a false alarm or something? It was something that it was like like my bad, like wrong number. Yeah. It was like, wait, are we being nuked or? Yeah, like what's happening? Did someone and, hit a button on accident? Yeah, but like that shouldn't be a button right. because it was like a butt dial. It really yeah. was like, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to send that to you. Yeah. And it like, but the U was the United States, like right. collectively the nation got this text message that was like, yo, a missile is coming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It was this big text message that went out. I think across right? the light. I think so. Yeah. And everybody was like, wait, what? What do we do? I'm surprised yeah. that didn't uh, result in like a war of the worlds type of like madness. Yeah. Well, if I mean, if you really want to terrify yourself, we're, we're like off subject now. But if you really want to also terrify yourself, read the original report. This is from the 1960s that inspired the movie Dr. Strangelove mm -hmm. about like how we had all these fail safes in place to prevent an accidental nuclear attack. But it was like, here's all the ways these fail safes can go wrong. And like, yay. Yeah. Fun times. Good times. Yeah. Ooh, so yeah. So that's the story of Japan's tsunami ghosts. It's a little less ghosty and a little more just like a very sad story about a nation like collectively grieving. Yeah. Um, but it also, I don't know, it'll like it got me thinking about what happened here in the aftermath of 9-11. Yeah. And please understand that I'm not saying that it didn't exist beforehand. But 9-11 felt like it was a turning point for like a, a certain radicalization <laughs> of, a, of a certain political party. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, is that is that collective PTSD that sent us down a path of thinking that like everything was everything was a threat and that everything is a danger and that life as we know it is being yeah. threatened by these like big bad monsters that hide in the dark? I think that's part of it. I've actually, I, not to like go way down this rabbit hole, but like I've done, I've read some stuff about that. And like, you know, the seeds had been planted before that, like the mm -hmm. seeds for this radicalization, but th that was just like the match to the tinder. Yeah. Um, there was also this, like, I'm going to get into a little bit of this in my story, but like, you know, the Cold War, there was something almost, I think, comforting in the fact that mm. you have two nations, you know, the United States and the Soviet Union kind of squaring off against each other. Mm -hmm. But like, there's a ration, like you understand that it's territorial disputes, it's ideological disputes. And like, and you think like both nations have like, at least we were telling ourselves that there was, what would the word be? Like, uh, like systems in place to prevent a catastrophe. And obviously, mm -hmm. like I said, with the Dr. Strangelove story, it's like, yeah, I'm not sure how good those systems actually were. 
Mm-hmm. But I think part of the fear that 9-11 just kind of crystallized was like after the Soviet Union collapsed, then it was just like the threats seemed like diffused and everywhere. And we mm-hmm. didn't understand, like we understood the Soviet Union, or at least we thought we did. Yeah. Did not understand the world post-Soviet Union. And I right. still don't, you know? Yeah. And, and I mean, of course, there's something too about, you know, these these like attacks happening on U.S. soil. And we, we, we I, I think we, you know, maybe somewhat foolishly believed that we were safe here. Like stuff would yeah. happen, but it would happen. It would happen in Pearl Harbor. It would happen far away from here. Like, but so, I think there was something about, about watching, you know, watching the planes go into the towers and, and, you know, everything that happened at the Pentagon and and all of that stuff that just shook something, I guess, like loose in the collective, like American society. And for a lot of people, I think it may have caused them to go down a path because like, I don't know, I, and, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong. I can't think of another time when conspiracy theories have been so widely accepted by mm-hmm. like such large swaths of people. I mean, we've, we've had it. Like we've talked about yeah. this with kind of panic. You yeah. Know? And, and like there was things like the John Birch Society, which was like QAnon before QAnon back in like the 50s and 60s and stuff. Mm-hmm. But it was always pretty fringy. Yeah. Like the satanic panic was like, that was a weird anomaly. I don't even think it was an anomaly, but it was like a weird uh, kind of collective hysteria that happened, Mm -hmm. but it was pretty like localized on one thing. Now it just like, it seems like goes everywhere. It's everything and And incorporates everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the way it's moved into the mainstream. Like I have to think this is at least in part, you know, post nine 11 trauma. yeah and like yeah and like that's the thing when we're talking about this like trauma that's going to come you know now post-pandemic we don't know what it's going to look like because i don't think anyone could have seen the like butterfly effect of the attack on 9-11 kind of down the road leading to the presidency of donald trump you know yeah um like that was not something i would have (laughs) predicted so like we just don't we don't know what we don't like and like we're at this weird place where we're on the cusp of like we can choose to be better or worse you yeah. know, after this current trauma. And like I wouldn't put money on either way at this point. Yeah. I mean, I think a whole lot of people think that being worse is being better, yeah. unfortunately. Exactly. All right. Happy fun times. Well, I'm yeah. glad I was going to do a spooky. I was I was thinking of doing a spooky story along with yours, but actually now I'm kind of glad I have kind of a happy story. Yay. Okay, good. Fly me to the moon. Let me play among the stars. And let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. In other words... Hold my hand In other words Baby, kiss me It starts sort of dark, um, but it moves into a happy place. So I'm going to talk about Alan Bean, the first artist who walked on, well, the first and only artist to have walked on the moon. Okay. So this kind of all came about a few weeks ago. I started watching i hadn't watched it in years but i started watching that you remember that hbo miniseries from the earth to the moon no um (laughs) sorry (laughs) not helping Um, (laughs) so it's from the 90s it was it kind of came right after apollo 13 
Okay. And Tom Hanks produced it. And it was like this docu-series that just basically took us through the entire Apollo program. Like okay. each up, I think it was 12 episodes. And just from the start of the, the space race up through the moon landings. And each episode just kind of told a different like piece of the story. You know? Okay. And I realized another thing that's going on is I've been, as, as happens sometimes, just falling down the rabbit hole of watching old Friends episodes. Um, and i realized like i was like oh like i'm ross when it comes to space stuff like you know how he is about dinosaurs Mm -hmm. like that's how i am with space stuff so okay okay (laughs) um this story was one i actually really wasn't that familiar with but i i think it's it's uh an interesting kind of i don't know human piece of of the space race all right. Um, so my sources are Wikipedia, an article from space.com, uh, Alan Bean from Ast- Astronaut to Artist. Uh, this was from 2018. From nature.com, article called The Artist Who Walked on the Moon, also 2018. A lot of these articles are 2018 because it was kind of right when he had passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from NPR, Alan Bean, Apollo astronaut who walked on the moon, dies at 86. And I've got a little quote from my favorite guy, Stephen King. Okay. So let's just talk a little bit about the like context of what the space race was. I think everyone kind of knows that term, but kind of going back to what we were just talking about, like, I think it's easy to like idealize the idea of like, you know, we went to the moon, but really what this was about was terror of the Soviet Union. Uh, Cause this was fears of the Soviet mm. domination of space. You know, they beat us into space and we all freaked out. Um, Question. Yeah. What did we think was going to happen when they got to space? I will talk about that. Okay. So this was really fears of like militarizing space. Okay. It all comes out of Cold War anxiety and it all grows out of, you know, sort of a parallel race between the nations was the missile race. Uh It kind of went from like right after World War II up until the collapse of the Soviet Union. Okay. After World War II, we had a massive air dominance over the Soviet Union. We had a much bigger air force than they did. So there, and we had developed the two atomic bombs that were dropped Mm -hmm. on Japan. Mm -hmm. Um, So the Soviet it's trying to catch up with us realized they weren't ever going to be able to compete with us in terms of an air force so they decided we're going to like build a bunch of icbm rockets so that we can launch these intercontinental ballistic missiles to kind of even even the playing field at least as far as they saw it okay so they essentially reverse engineered a bunch of German like Nazi era rockets. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I don't mean to laugh, but I'm laughing. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, I think they were like, hmm, yeah, because because the Nazis were working on, they wanted to be able to essentially, they didn't have a nuclear weapon, but they wanted to be able to bomb New York and stuff. Mm. So the Nazis were busily trying to, they had a very sophisticated rocket program at the time. And what happened after we defeated the Nazis is both the, the Soviets and the U.S. started trying to like snatch up all those Nazi scientists. Okay. Uh, in the U.S., it was called Operation Paperclip. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they ended up at NASA, right? Mm-hmm. A bunch of them did. I think most famously a guy named Werner von Braun. While the the Soviets got ahead of us on this game because we were, you know, we had this air force, we had dropped these two bombs, so we we were the first to to successfully use an atomic bomb in war. But we didn't have much of a rocket program, kind of until we got people like Werner von Braun. Uh, we did have a rocket scientist who, like, kind of around World War One, started experimenting with trying to come up with these massive rockets. A guy named Robert Goddard. But before World War Two the New York times published like an editorial making fun of him. And he just like, was like, well, fuck off. And like, 
became a recluse. So we didn't really have a rocket program. Uh, Okay. I just have to say that in the doing of this podcast, my opinion of the New York Times has greatly changed. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm not somebody who was like, oh, you know, they're like the pinnacle of journal. I mean, you know, the I gray don't really lady read, or whatever. They call right. It. I don't really like read newspapers I and all that stuff. I'm not sure we quoted the New York Times once where we weren't like, check out this bullshit. <laughs> so Times. the bull. <laughs> yeah. So check out this stinking pile of shit that the New York Times published. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like, unfortunately, every time they come up, it's like they're on the wrong side of history. Yeah. Yeah. I think often Yikes. enough they are. <laughs> wow. Do better. Um, so the the competition uh, that led to the space race started in July of 1955. When under Dwight Eisenhower as president, the U.S. announced our plan to launch a satellite. And we were like, we're going to put a satellite in space sometime between 1957 and 1958. And from reading about it, I think we were like real cocky about this. Mm. But four days after that announcement, so on August 2nd, uh, 1955, the Soviets said, well, we're going to put up a satellite too. And I think we were all kind of like, yeah, 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 whatever. Mm. And then... On October 4th, 1957, the Soviet Union put the first satellite into space. Ugh. That's when they launched Sputnik 1. It was the first Humiliating. satellite. To, <laughs> yeah. It was the first satellite to orbit the Earth. It orbited for three weeks and it was transmitting to Earth the whole time, or for that three weeks, and then its battery died. It orbited for another two months and then its orbit decayed and it went back into the atmosphere in January of 1958. Well, this created what was called the Sputnik crisis, which is basically America was like, wait, what? (laughs) Um, And like freaked out because the fear was essentially that they were going to put atomic bombs on these satellites and like, there's no way we could shoot them down because they're in fucking space. And then they could just like drop nukes on anywhere they wanted. So when you Mm -hmm. said like, what was the fear? That was the fear. So in his book, Don Smacob, Stephen King actually talks about this. Um, He tells a story about when he was a kid in Stratford, Connecticut. So anyone who's ever read it, like it was sort of the same time and he was the same age as the kids in it. Like he was probably about 11 years old. He went with his friends to see a double feature of some like sort of B sci-fi movies, like, you know, afternoon matinee uh, mm-hmm. sci-fi movies. And one of them was called earth versus the flying saucers. And he's making the point of how these like, you know, horror movies of reflect like real life anxieties. They went to this movie earth versus the flying saucers was all about saucer men coming from the skies down to mm-hmm like attack us it's kind of like like a knockoff of world of worlds in the middle of the screening the projector stopped the lights went up (laughs) and the manager came out and said i just want to announce that the russians have launched a satellite (laughs) and all the kids and stephen king talks about like the kids just sat there quietly until like finally one of them was just like shut up you liar (laughs) (laughs) and the manager was just like This is the weirdest fucking story ever. I mean, can you imagine that? Like, like this was so big of a deal that a little theater in a small town in Connecticut felt the need to like stop the movie to be like the Russians have launched a satellite. Like, I think for all you millennials and younger out there, you probably don't remember how terrified we all were of the Soviet Union. I think I have some vague memories of the 80s still. Well, I just remember that the Russians were like the bad guys in movies. 
were Nazis or Russians. And to yeah. be completely honest, when I was very little, I didn't really know understand that there was a difference. I don't think I did either. Yeah. I was like bad guys in uniforms. I kind of remember my mind being blown when I found out we were actually allied with the Soviets against the Nazis. I was like, wait, right? how does that make sense? Yeah, I was like, what the fuck? But anyway, so this is what... Thanks, thanks, APS. <laughs> Just kidding, I went to parochial school. Yeah. Thanks, private school education. But this was like the era of like, like you know, hide under your desk. Like if, if yeah. you get the announcement, like you're supposed to hide under your desk, like that's going to do anything. Right, like that's you know? going to protect you from the wave of radiation coming for right. you. Right. Um, so this is what Stephen King had to say about that moment, kind of after. So so the, the manager left like you know one of the kids was like shut up you liar the manager left the movie started up again and then the kids are now watching the saucer invasion movie with the knowledge <laughs> that there's a fucking russian satellite up there so this is what <laughs> stephen king had to say okay he says the children grasped the implication of what the russians had done as well and as quickly as anyone else the big bombers that had smashed berlin and hamburg in world war ii were even then becoming obsolete a new anonymous abbreviation had come into the working vocabulary of terror ICBM. The ICBMs we understood were only the German V rockets grown up. They would carry enormous payloads of nuclear death and destruction. And if the Ruskies tried anything funny, we would simply blow them off the face of the earth. Watch out, Moscow. Here comes a big hot dose of the pioneer spirit for you, you turkeys. <laughs> Except that somehow, incredibly, the Russians were looking pretty good in the old ICBM department themselves. Mm -hmm. After all, ICBMs were only big rockets. And the commies certainly hadn't lofted Sputnik 1 into orbit with a potato masher. And in that context, the movie began again in Stratford with the ominous, warbling voices of the Saucerians echoing everywhere. Look to your skies. A warning will come from your skies. Look to your skies. So this is the context that leads to the space race. Mm -hmm. So at this point, the U.S. was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> like, we better get off our ass. Right. So they started working furiously to try and catch up and then eventually surpass the Soviets. So the first... Uh, attempt was something called Project Vanguard. This was a plan to launch the first U.S. satellite. It was a massive failure. So December 6, 1957, so it was just like a few months after Sputnik. They're broadcasting it on TV all across the country. Like, oh. we're about to put up our, our own satellite. The rocket took off and like two seconds later exploded. Ugh. So it was just like a massive humiliation. Devastating. Yeah. Um, it basically turned us into a joke. When it yeah. came to uh, the space race, we were finally able to launch our first unmanned satellite. It's called Explorer One on January 31st, 1958. Mm. President Eisenhower then officially created NASA on April 2nd, 1958. And we were just trying as hard as we could to catch up. But on April 12th, 1961, the Soviets put the first human into space. Mm. And cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin orbited the Earth for 108 minutes. Yeah. So, I just think like, um, I, I would like totally want to hear a story, but I just <laughs> think of how insane it must have been to like shoot up into the sky and be like, there's my planet. Yeah. Well, and so the first person I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, just to follow up on that. The first person we put into space was Alan Shepard. Um, mm -hmm. Did I, I don't think I wrote down the date. I think it was like the early 60s. But he was part of the Mercury program. He was part of like the first, what they called the first seven astronauts or the Mercury mm. Seven. Mm -hmm. um, if you guys mm -hmm. want to know more of that story, 
either watch the movie or ideally read the book the right stuff by tom wolf it's a mm-hmm. fucking excellent book but anyway uh disney also put out a series i think in conjunction with maybe national geographic which is like a dramatized version you can also if you want to hear since the ladies are always missing from history you can also watch a show i believe you can probably find it maybe on itunes uh called the astronaut wives clubs mm-hmm. yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Club. i haven't and seen it, it but i've been wanting to watch it it stars my internet boyfriend uh, i almost said luke perry <laughs> rest in peace luke kirby who also plays <clears throat> what's his what's his face lenny bruce on yeah. marvelous mrs Maisel. um yeah, 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 yeah no i've been i've been really wanting to watch that and then what is that movie that came out oh my god i feel terrible i didn't write this down but it's about all the the black women who are instrumental in nasa Okay, hold on. I'm uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Hold on. Okay, so Alan Shepard went into space in 1961. Okay, that makes sense. And I'm gonna find out, I'm gonna fact check you on the name of that movie here while you while you do your thing. Okay, so yeah, so 1961, uh Alan Shepard piloted the Mercury Redstone 3 and by piloted basically strapped himself onto a big rocket and just rode the fucking like rode the wave. He did very little. Oh, okay. There wasn't much for him to do. Now, whereas go ahead. The movie's Hidden Figures. Hidden Figures, yeah. It's a really good movie. But we were still, even by putting Alan Shepard into space, we were still behind because Yuri Gagarin had orbited the Earth, like I said, I think for 108 minutes. We pretty much just like strapped Alan Shepard on top of this big <laughs> rocket and catapulted him into the sky. And he just kind of went boop and then boop back down. So wow. he basically spent 15 minutes in space. <laughs> okay. They shot him into space from Cape Canaveral and he came down like right off the coast of the Bahamas. But we made it. We did it. We got into space. I, I just, is it something we want to rush? Well, and I think like that's a thing people have, and I'm not sure how much this is like revisionist history, but I think it's believable knowing how the Soviets did things. They weren't real concerned with human life. This is so true. like we were, you know, part of what took us a while is we were trying to do it right. We were trying not to kill our mm-hmm. astronauts. Didn't always succeed. And I'll get to that in a second. So around this time that Alan Shepard rode the big fucking rocket into space, JFK oh decided to get behind this. So okay. JFK kind of wasn't a big supporter of NASA at first. Wasn't that interested in it. But then the Bay of Pigs happened mm-hmm. and he was like, hmm, I need to save face. Mm-hmm. So this is when he gave his famous we chose to go to the moon speech at rice university september 12 1962 mm. but i do say that space can be explored and mastered without feeding the fires of war without repeating the mistakes that man has made in extending his writ around this globe of ours there is no strife no prejudice no national conflict in outer space as yet Its hazards are hostile to us all. Its conquest deserves the best of all mankind. And its opportunity for peaceful cooperation may never come again. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal 
will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills, because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. So this was basically where he sort of famously was like, we're going to make it to the moon in 10 years. Like before 1970, we're going to make it to the moon. What's interesting, this was something I never knew before, but he was actually proposed around this time that we should actually team up with the Soviet Union in a Hmm. joint mission to make it to the moon. Okay. It was initially reported that Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev rejected the proposal, but Khrushchev's son in 1997 revealed that Khrushchev was actually considering it. But a month later, JFK was assassinated. Khrushchev backed out because he did not trust Lyndon Johnson. Mm. Um, And I just think this is fascinating because like how much, I think Kennedy's idea was like, hey, maybe this is a way to like dial down. You know, this is after the crisis. Like maybe this is- Turn this shit down a little bit. Turn this shit down. Like let's put ideology aside. If we as a human species- are able to do this together, maybe this is can be like a step towards peace. Yeah. And then <gasps> maybe that's and that's why Kennedy was assassinated. I read that today and I was like, oh well, we solved it. Solved it. <laughs> yeah. Solved it. You heard it here first. Kennedy solved. Make that the <laughs> yeah. title of the episode. Yeah. <laughs> Kennedy assassination solved. solved. <laughs> but I'm just like, man, I read that and I was like, oh man, that's kind of heartbreaking. Because mm-hmm. like so much of the last 50, 60 years of human history would could have possibly been different. Yeah. Because what the space race turned into was a race for dominance rather than like this like opportunity for cooperation. Yeah. But so like I said, you know, our, we finally put Alan Shepard into space in 1961. And then after that, on February 20th, 1962, John Glenn was the first American to actually orbit the Earth. Uh-huh. He piloted the Mercury Atlas 6. Um, mm-hmm. It was the fifth human spaceflight. It orbited the Earth three times for about five hours and then splashed down into the North Atlantic. So that's kind of the start of the space race. And this is where we started kind of lapping the Russians. Like okay. Mercury led into Project Gemini. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on Project Gemini because uh, it was like an intermediate project between Mercury and Apollo. It mm-hmm. ran from 1961 to 1966. There were 10 Gemini missions. They all took place between 1965 and 1966. The purpose was essentially to put uh, craft into orbit and then practice the techniques we would need to then go to the moon. Um, So this is where we had the first spacewalks, things like that. Okay. And then Project Apollo was kind of running concurrent to Project Gemini, but then went longer. So it ran from 1961 to 1972. The goal was essentially to beat the Soviets and put the first human astronauts onto the moon. So I'm just going to go through, like, there was like a whole bunch of Apollo missions. I'm not going to talk about all of them, obviously. The one we're mainly going to talk about tonight is uh, Apollo 12. But just, I'm going to run through just a few of the important ones. So the first one, unfortunately, is really tragic, Apollo 1. Mm. It was meant to be the first crewed Apollo mission. The plan was to launch on February 21st, 1967, and do Mm. like some low Earth orbital tests of the command and service modules, which was like basically the mothership. The Apollo missions, basically there were two craft. There was the command and service module connected to the lunar module and the idea is the command and service module gets you to the moon then you disconnect the lunar module and that's what takes you down to the surface so this was just to like test out the command module on january 27th 1967 nasa was conducting 
what was called the plugs out test. Basically, it was on the launch pad and it was just to make sure everything inside the capsule worked if you unplugged it from everything. So like to make sure it ran off of internal power. There were three astronauts, the, the Apollo 1 crew, Gus Grissom, who was one of the Mercury astronauts, Ed White and Roger Chaffee. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gus Grissom was the commander of the flight. They're doing this. It was like a real standard routine test, but at about 6.30 p.m., a fire started in the wiring. Uh, sort of right beneath Gus Grissom's feet. And because of the hatch design, they were not able to get out. So basically what happened is the way the hatches had been designed in the past was that there was these explosive charges you could use to basically blow the hatch off to get Mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. But they had done some tests, I think, during Gemini. And they were like, oh, if it's very possible that these could like these charges could go off accidentally. And like, if you have the capsule splashes down in the water and then before you're prepared, you blow off the door, it could fill Mm. with water. And Mm -hmm. they're like, no, we need to basically put a latch that you have to swing it. And I think it's even worse because you had to swing it inward, I think. Mm. So they just, they weren't able to get out. And within minutes they had all died. Uh, Either. I think they died of smoke inhalation, but the the transmission, basically, they were like, get us out, get us out. And then someone screamed in pain. And then that was. Mm. So unfortunately, that's the tragedy of Apollo 1. The right stuff, the book, really goes into detail on that. Mm. But after that, the Apollo missions, with the exception of one, which I'll mention briefly, <laughs> were very successful. So a couple of the other important ones, Apollo 8, launched December 21st, 1968, took just over six days to complete. It was the first crewed spacecraft to actually leave low earth orbit for the moon it was crewed by frank borman jim lovell and william anders and basically all it did is it went to the moon kind of went around it a couple times and came back um just like let's see if we can make it to the moon before we try to land anybody right so it orbited the moon 10 times over the course of about 20 hours they took pictures scouted possible landing sites came back to earth everything went fine the most famous uh, Apollo mission, of course, is Apollo 11, mm-hmm. launched July 16th, 1969, took o- just over eight days to complete its mission, it crewed by Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins. Mm-hmm. It was the first mission to land on the moon, and Neil Armstrong was the first human being to set foot on the moon's surface at Tranquility Base, followed, of course, by Buzz Aldrin, while well, Michael Collins, he stayed up in the command module in orbit. Um, and this is, of course, where you get the famous quote. Very fine-grained as you get close to it. It's almost like a powder. Brown mass uh, is very fine. Brown mass, step off the laminate. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Apollo 12, which I'm going to talk about here in a second. And then, of course, Apollo 13. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone's seen the movie. We don't need to go into it. <laughs> This is Houston. We have a problem, right? It's Houston. We have a problem. That's Tom Hanks in, in space. I love that movie. Yeah. Well, that's kind of what kicked this whole thing off because I, I actually watched Apollo 13 again a few weeks ago and was like, man, mm-hmm. it's such a great story. Which, of course, then I was like, I need to watch all of From the Earth to the Moon and like, two. right. So, yeah. So, I'm not going to go into Apollo 13 because like everyone basically knows what happened it was a failed mission it's considered a successful failure in that the mission (laughs) failed but we successfully got our astronauts back yeah but right before apollo 13 was apollo 12 
So this was the second successful mission to the moon. And this is where I'm going to introduce a guy who you've probably never heard of named Alan Bean. Mm-hmm. So Alan Bean's the fourth human being to set foot on the moon. He was born March 15th, 1932 in Wheeler, Texas. Apparently Texas is real proud of him. He's the first Texan on the moon. <laughs> <Okay>. uh, <laughs> Relax, Texas. Relax, Texas. Uh, so he graduated from R.L. Paschal High School in Fort Worth in 1949, and then immediately enlisted in the U.S. Naval reserve right out of high school where he served as an electronics technician striker whatever that means uh Mm -hmm. at the naval air station in dallas he served for basically a year and then was honorably discharged in 1950 but then in 1955 he was commissioned as an ensign through the Naval Reserve ROTC at the University of Texas at Austin, where he went on to attend flight training. So he completed his flight training in June of 1956, was then assigned to its Attack Squadron 44 in Jacksonville, Florida. While there, he flew the F-9F Cougar and the A-4D Skyhawk. No idea what those are, but I'm assuming Mm. they're big, scary airplanes. He served from 1956 until 1960. After that tour of duty, he went to the U.S. Naval Test Pilot School in Maryland where his instructor was a guy named Pete Conrad, who would later be the commander of Apollo 12 with Alan Bean. Um, sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm not laughing at you, but my dog is snoring so I can hard. hear her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like while I was talking, I was like, what the fuck is that? Oh, it's, it's doing it. <laughs> She usually has like this really dainty snore and I don't know what is going on with her. I literally thought it was like your ice maker or something. (laughs) No, it's totally my dog. Oh my God. I hope she's okay. She's probably like face down in the cushions. Like, (laughs) okay, sorry. It was just getting louder and louder and it just got, I couldn't, I just, I'm sorry. I'm being unprofessional. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because professionalism is something we hold at such high esteem. Exactly. Professional is our middle name. (laughs) So Alan Bean became a test pilot. Mm -hmm. And this is what really like what I found fascinating about the right stuff was you know, a lot of it's about the Mercury program, but it really starts with talking about Chuck Yeager and all the test pilots and how these guys were just like fucking like, I don't want to say it had a death wish, but like, man, talk about no fear. Yeah. Because they're flying airplanes that were like, had never been used before. It's like, well, we think it's going to work. Yeah. Yeah. There was a real, and yeah, I don't know what that was driven by. If it was like patriotism or curiosity or, you know, I think there's a lot of, I wanted to like whip their dicks out. And I think there's a lot, I was going to say like, patriotism curiosity and also like who's got the biggest dick there's a lot of all of that happening yeah but like like respect for like yeah like i'm afraid to drive on the fucking interstate when it's wet like right i'm not getting in one of these fucking test planes but alan bean he became a test pilot so he flew all sorts of different experimental aircraft and then he rejoined the attack squadron 44 went on to join attack squadron va 172 and then was finally selected as an astronaut so he joined nasa in 1963 as part of astronaut group three okay he was first named as the backup command pilot of gemini 10 but they didn't select him for the flight instead they put him in the apollo applications program so it was just like the people figuring out the rules and like all the different flight protocols 
tests and devising the different tests okay. and things like that. And while he was in this applications program, he was the first astronaut to actually dive in what's called the neutral buoyancy simulator. So we've all seen this. It's like the big pool that they go into to like simulate weightlessness. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had pretty much given up on his dream of actually going into space. And and like I'd read a couple things where he was like, yeah, I read some people the wrong way. I kind of was like, thought I knew better than everyone else had to do. Mm. Probably burned a couple bridges. Mm -hmm. um, so he had sort of gotten sounds like shunted off into this Apollo applications program. But then an astronaut, a guy named Clifton Williams, was killed in a jet crash in 1967. <gasps> he was basically piloting a jet home, I think, to Alabama to visit his parents. And there was a malfunction. He crashed and died. Mm. This opened up space for Alan Bean because Pete Conrad, who is his former instructor, had become basically his best friend. And so he was like, hey, let's let's get Let's get Alan in here. So this is what mm -hmm. Alan Bean had to say. He said, Pete Conrad, who knew me from test pilot school, chose me, although I hadn't done anything during the period of NASA where he could say, he's really good. He's just undiscovered. <laughs> I wasn't the undiscovered talent. It was never that. It was always not being able to show it somehow. So he, for some reason, still felt that I could be a good lunar module pilot. <laughs> So that's how he joined the Apollo program. And he ended up on the crew for Apollo 12. This, Like I said, this is the second crewed lunar landing. It launched on November 14th, 1969 from the Kennedy mm -hmm. Space Center. Mm -hmm. Lasted 10 days, 4 hours, 36 minutes, and 24 seconds. So Pete Conrad was the commander. The command module pilot was a guy named Richard F. Gordon. So he's the guy who stays in orbit. And then Bean okay. was the pilot for the lunar module. So like NASA had been on this tight fucking schedule with these Apollo launches because they were really like, we need to get to the moon first. And it's important to note there was no practical reason to go to the moon. There's yeah. I, okay. The moon we can use. <laughs> like, right. It's just like. We wanted to be the first there. Yeah. But after we made it to the moon with Apollo 11, they were like, okay, we can like chill out a little bit. So they ended up delaying Apollo 12 for a couple months and sent Bean and Conrad out on these like geology field trips to learn like how to identify different rocks and stuff. And there's a really great, it's not about this Apollo mission, but there's a really great episode on From Earth to the Moon about like astronauts learning geology. And this is where I say like, oh, I'm Ross from Friends when it comes, because I found that almost the most fascinating part of the whole <laughs> story mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the command module and the lunar module were pretty much identical to apollo 11 they had added like some hammocks to the lunar module so that while they're on the surface bean and conrad could like rest a little more comfortably the mission launched during a big thunderstorm in florida and as it was like lifting into the sky it got struck twice by lightning no yeah <laughs> and it oh damaged it didn't do any damage to the rocket but it, it blew out the instruments so all of a sudden like all the telemetry data coming to nasa was just totally garbled so they were like right on the verge of like having to abort and this is what alan bean said he said i looked up at the display that had all the caution lights and there were more on than i'd ever seen in my life so they're like seconds away from like, we either have to abort or we're going to keep going. And all the ground control people are like, what do we do? What do we do? And there was this obscure fix. I don't really understand how it works. So I'm not going to go into it, but something about switching to auxiliary power to like reset everything. Okay. And they started telling Pete Conrad, the commander, like you need to reset the auxiliary power. And he's like, what the fuck you don't? Cause they never trained for this. Oh shit. Um, but Alan Bean figured out what they were saying. He's like, Oh, I got it. And he like, switched the switch and everything was fine like everything reset they were fine so um, they just like toggled the on off switch basically it's like rebooting your computer <laughs> it sounds like <laughs> yeah scotty and i are basically nasa experts yeah. at I this mean, point i mean after doing this episode they really should offer me a job um, <laughs> 
<laughs> so everything after that went fine. So like, there's not a lot of drama to this, but I'll just talk a little bit about what happened. Mm-hmm. The one bit of drama was that like, even though everything else was fine at ground control, they were like, well, the lightning might've damaged the explosive bolts that we need to deploy the parachute when they re-enter. And they tried to figure it out and they're like, you know what? There's no way to know. There's nothing they can do about it. So like hope for the fucking best. (sighs) Parachutes did not deploy. They would just like, you know, re-enter the atmosphere and then just slam into the ocean at top speed. Mm. Like that's not survivable, but they didn't, they didn't tell the astronauts about this because they were like, I mean, if it happens, it happens. Why? Yeah. What? Like, hey guys. Like you might die when you get back. So. And it'll be awful. Yeah. Good luck. Anyway, good luck. Yeah, exactly. As it worked out, the parachutes worked totally fine. So the flight to the moon went fine. They ended up being able to do this like pinpoint landing in this area called the Ocean of Storms. When Apollo 11 had landed, they actually missed their landing spot by like several miles. So they're like, let's try to get better this time. They're actually <laughs> trying to land within walking distance to this like unmanned probe they'd sent up a few years earlier. And they did it. They they did a pinpoint landing like right where they were supposed to. And this is what uh, Alan Bean had to say about being on the moon. He says, like one thing about Alan Bean is he's kind of known, like, you know, there's the astronaut very like stoic it's like the pilot thing very stoic mm-hmm. you know and like alan bean was just i think a little bit more of a goofball mm-hmm. and it sounds like pete conrad was too so like this is what alan bean had to say he said previous astronauts behaved with reserve bean gave the public a glimpse of the more human side of being a space explorer armstrong commenced his historic landing with a deadpan see you later descending to the moon's surface in tension building silence bean sounded like an excited tourist <laughs> His commentary seemed to touch on whatever popped into his mind from the view outside his window where he said, looks good out there, babe. Looks good. (laughs) (laughs) To the relief of seeing his landing spot in the ocean of storms. There's that crater right where it's supposed to be. (laughs) (laughs) To complimenting Conrad on his flying skills where he said, you're beautiful. (laughs) Oh, oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) So this is from the nature.com article. Uh Pete Conrad, who was the third person to set foot on the moon after Armstrong and Aldrin. So, you know, Neil Armstrong had as like one small step for man, one giant Mm -hmm. step for mankind. So Pete Conrad, when he stepped out of the module, he said, whoopee, man, that may have been a small one for Neil, but that's a long one for me. Because he was known to be really short. <laughs> what? Oh my gosh! What a bunch of goofballs! Yeah, it, the the from the Earth to the Moon episode is fucking hilarious. And actually, Dave Foley, the guy from Kids in the Hall, plays Alan Bean in it. Yeah, okay. Fucking perfect. <laughs> okay. So that quote, the Whoopi Man quote, was actually it was not like off the cuff he had planned to say it he made a bet with a reporter the reporter was like you're not gonna say that and he's like give me five hundred dollars and i'll say it. <laughs> um, <laughs> i think he said later he's like but i couldn't collect the money because it was against the rules right so like everything went pretty well except at least according to that from the earth to the moon episode and kind of from what i read like alan bean fucked up all the cameras oh no yeah <laughs> so like nasa really wanted because they wanted to keep excitement going for the space program so like you know we had this like really shitty black and white video camera that you know if you see the original moon landing footage it's that like fuzzy out of focus thing they're uh-huh. like we're gonna we're gonna send up a color camera with you like get some really nice color uh photography alan that's your job alan and like, his, his thumb was over the yeah. shutter the whole time 
No, it was even worse. As he's setting it up, he accidentally like like they told him like one thing you can't do is point it directly at the sun. And he was like, cool. And got then it. as he said, he got it, <laughs> pointed it right at the sun, blew out the secondary electron conduction tube. Oh no. Like immediately. So the picture that went back to Earth, it was just like whited out. And all the TV stations were like, cool guys. And then just like switched over to the fucking laughing or whatever. Um, but they did have <laughs> Like still cameras. There's a bunch of really cool pictures um, that they took while they're up there. They put up another U.S. flag because apparently when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin put up Mm -hmm. the flag for uh, Apollo 11, they put it too close to the lunar module. And so when it took off, they knocked it over. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Do you think as they were like shooting off of the moon, they were like, our flag. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I hope so. They're like, oh no. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, our flag. Oh man. Aw, <laughs> guys. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, and then they were leaving a bunch of like instruments to send back data to Earth, collect samples from the various craters in the area. They're bringing back a bunch of moon rocks and stuff. And then they were also walked over to this surveyor probe, this unmanned probe, to like take off a bunch of pieces of equipment including a TV camera that had been mounted to the surveyor probe. Mm-hmm. And as they were like approaching the probe, they realized the surveyor was kind of on the lip of a crater. And so they're like, well, hopefully we don't knock it over and we all go tumbling into the crater <laughs> to our oh, death. God. But they were fine. They got everything. Okay. Famously, they really wanted to take like essentially what would have been the first space selfie. Uh-huh. They had packed a little timer. They were not supposed to bring it. They'd like snuck this little timer on board and they were going to take a picture of the two of them in front of the surveyor probe. Uh-huh. Uh, so that when like the NASA people back home developed the pictures, it would be like them going like, hi. What's you know? up, mooning the camera? <laughs> and uh alan bean lost the timer <laughs> come on buddy yeah. so they were like trying to set up the camera and he was like he was supposed to have had the timer in his bag where he was collecting all the moon rocks couldn't find it so they ended up not being able to take that photo as they're getting back on the lunar module they found the timer like in the dirt and they didn't think to set up the camera bean just got mad and like chucked it as far <laughs> as he could and then later at least according to the from the earth to the moon episode he was like yeah then afterwards i was like kind of wished we thought to take a picture then yeah but he did paint a very famous photo it's called the fabulous photo we never took from 1999 (laughs) and it's basically like the two of them saying they're going hi can Um, i look it up yeah and i'm gonna post it on social media he also has another painting of himself and pete conrad looking for the timer called our little secret (laughs) (laughs) everything pretty much went without a hitch except for being fucking up the camera situation the whole time okay he did leave his silver astronaut pin behind he tossed it into the crater and he said and when i look at the moon at night i think about that pin up there just as shiny as it ever was and someday maybe somebody will go pick it up so they spent about 31 hours on the surface of the moon, which is, I think, like 10 hours more than Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin did. Mm-hmm. And then they rejoined the command module. They stayed in orbit for another day, took taking a bunch of pictures, and then went home. And everything was fine. Like I said, not a ton of drama there. Yeah. Okay, after Apollo 12. Alan Beam 
became the spacecraft commander for the second mission to Skylab. Uh, this was like our first space station before the International Space Station. Uh, he was on the second mission, which was from July to September 1973. And while there, he performed his first and I think only spacewalk. They were in space for 59 days. And he Ooh. said after that experience, he said, since that time, I have not complained about the weather a single time. I've not complained about traffic. When I got back home, I go down to shopping centers and just watch the people go by and think, boy, we're lucky to be here. Ugh. Yeah. So he retired from the Navy in October 1975. He stuck with NASA a few more years where he became the head of the astronaut candidate operations and training group. But then mm -hmm. he retired in June 1981 because he wanted to become a full-time painter. Okay. While he'd been studying engineering and working as a test pilot, this is even before joining NASA, he was taking night classes in art, but he never really pursued it. Kind of, he was like at this crossroads where basically he was in line to become one of the first shuttle pilots, but he gave it up. He said, the more I thought about it, the more I realized there were young men and women at NASA and the astronaut office that could fly the shuttle as good as I could or better. But I was the only one interested in trying to do this other job, mm. which was painting. And then he also said about half the astronauts thought it was a midlife crisis or something. The other <laughs> half, the ones that were more right brain, thought it was a pretty good idea. <laughs> Did you look up mm -hmm. any of his paintings? Like, mm -hmm. he was a fucking fantastic artist. Yeah. Like, and what's fun about his paintings, like, so he does all these, like, some of them are, like, based on photographs of actual moon missions. But a lot of times it was just, like, these kind of imaginary scenarios. There's one, I can't remember what it's called, but it's, like, an astronaut playing air guitar. <laughs> um, i'll post that one too he would also like call his astronaut friends and just have them walk through their memories then he would paint mm. images of their memories he was really like one of his big things is he wanted to add color to the moon yeah. so if you look at his paintings you see like it's not just that gray bone white that you're used yeah. to it's like all sorts of like reflected colors and stuff yeah he would mix moon dust into the paint so oh. his Paintings have actual moon dust in them because he realized like his spacesuit and like I think he took the patches from the spacesuit as like souvenirs and then realized they were just like caked with dust. So once he started painting, he would actually like mix the moon dust in. He would use like the tools he used, like I think a hammer and stuff. Mm -hmm. When he was on the moon, he would use them on the paintings to like create textures and stuff. Cool. He would stamp them with a model of the Apollo boot. <laughs> so he became a very well-known, respected artist in his own right. In July of 2009, for the 40th anniversary of the Apollo 11 landing, he exhibited his paintings at the Smithsonian Institution's National Air and Space Museum in D.C. Cool. By the end of his career as a painter, he would do these paintings on commission and would literally like be paid like $45,000 minimum. Wow. Yeah. So this is what he had to say. He said, I'm the only one who can paint the moon because I'm the only one who knows whether that's right or not. He also said, I believe that 100, 200, 300 years from now, all these paintings will be around because they're the first paintings of humans doing things off this earth. Mm. When humans go to Mars, they're going to do the very same things because this is what humans do. And here's a quote from that nature.com article. This is about Alan Bean. The author says, how could he describe what it was like to hurdle home at 40,000 kilometers per hour or to place his thumb in front of the earth and block from view everything he knew? He found his answer in painting. He even mixed moon dust into his acrylics and used his Apollo hammer and boots to, in his words, sculpt a textured surface unique in all of art history. Bean's art is important in other ways. Apollo astronaut Bill Anders' stunning photograph, Earthrise, taken from lunar orbit, is right viewed as iconic but bean's art goes further 
It adds emotions to the extraordinary scenes he witnessed. Self-described as one of the more fearful astronauts, he was well aware that death was always near. That comes through in his mm. paintings, whether we see astronauts deploying equipment, the service module flying across the lunar surface, or Earth peaking above the horizon. There's a mm. feeling of being far from home in terms of both distance and difficulty. That's an interesting quote because I don't quite agree with it. Mm -hmm. Like what I kind of love about his paintings, some of them you do get that kind of like oppressive sense of space, but a lot of them are very like irreverent, you know, like there's mm -hmm. a, there's a sense of fun. Like I love, like we've all seen sci-fi art and art of astronauts, but here's an actual astronaut having fun with his memories of being on the moon. Yeah. Like that's unique. <laughs> yeah. He was inducted into the International Space Hall of Fame in 1983, the Astronaut Hall of Fame in 1997. He was given an honorary doctorate of science from Texas Wesleyan University, an honorary doctorate of engineering from the University of Akron. And there was like a whole list of like, he was in this Hall of Fame and got this award. And, you know, like I didn't want to list all of them. Right. Like I said, he would, you know, be paid $45,000 minimum to do wow. these paintings on commission. He published several books, including an autobiography in 1988, a number of books featuring his artwork, his most recent book of paintings was called painting apollo first artist on another world it was published in 2009 <laughs> mm -hmm. he passed away may 26 2018 i think he i read he had pneumonia but i didn't write it down mm. this was in houston texas at the age of 86 he was married to his second wife and is also survived by a son and daughter from his first marriage he was buried at arlington national cemetery the service included a flyover military band a carriage procession and a gun salute and mm. that is the story of Alan Bean, the first artist on the moon. That's cool. Yeah. I had known about, cause I, like I said, I'm, I'm like a dork for space stuff. Mm -hmm. So I knew about him, but I'd kind of forgotten about him. I had never really gone to look up his paintings. Like I knew that he was doing stuff and I was kind of blown away by the paintings. Like he was very talented artist. Yeah. I'm um, looking at some of them right now. Wow. So yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll post some of these on social media. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was great. That was a great. I'm glad. I'm glad you went second. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't happen too often where I have the like happy story. Mm -hmm. um, but like, I really wanted to do a ghosty story to go with yours. But I just like this is something I've been like after watching that miniseries. I'm just like, you know, he's one of those guys that like a lot of people like everyone knows Neil Armstrong. Everyone knows right. Him, and everyone knows Jim Lovell because of Apollo 13. Mm -hmm. Like Alan Mean, like if you're not, he's not like part of pop culture. And I think right. he kind of should be, you know? Yeah. Very cool. Oh, BT dubs by the time this episode comes out. Um, happy Pride, everybody. Yes. Yes. We're, re we're recording it, I think, on the first day of Pride. Are we not? Yes. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I The months are, you know, continue to blend together. But yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, as we were recording this, uh, it is June 1st. Happy Pride. We see you. We love you guys. Um, play safe. <laughs> COVID and sex wise. Yeah. Yeah, as always. <laughs> as always. Um, and we will, uh, yeah, we'll see you next week, right? Oh, I have to do the other thing too, don't I? I have, that's, <laughs> I have, I have okay. So play safe, COVID and sex-wise. Mm -hmm. um, stay weird, stay curious, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. So listen, friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.